Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And this is the podcast before the most important election in American democracy. And when I talk about American democracy, I'm talking about over the last 51 years. You know, a lot of people want to say, well, since the beginning of the country, no. America hasn't been really a true democracy until 1971 when the amendment was passed to allow people to start voting at the age of 18. Because we had to have all these other amendments to allow black people to vote, uh, which in turn made citizenship uh, uh, the main criteria to be able to vote. Uh, when we started allowing women to vote and then people under the age of 21 dropping it down to 18. So, 51 years. And there are people running that may win tomorrow that will do everything in their power to make sure that the democracy that we have now will no longer exist. And I pray that you are smart enough to vote against them in whatever state you're in. Because the majority of the country has one of those crazy people on the ballot. And I say crazy, but I mean crazy like a fox, right? So, now that I got that in, uh, November the 8th, 2022, it's going to be an amazing day in American history, one way or the other. And I need you all to participate. Now, the show that we're going to have is going to talk about something that has come up in the campaign. And that, well, the overarching theme in the campaigns has been crime, but we're going to talk specifically about violence, especially violence in the African-American community. And I'm going to talk to a couple people who are using different approaches to address the issue. My first guest is a brother that's been in the streets. And I'm going to ask him a question based on stuff that I've been seeing in, in social media there has been this incredible backlash to use the term black on black crime. And if you've listened to the podcast or you know a little bit about me, you know that I was involved with a group called black on black love. And, and that was a play in Chicago uh, against black on black crime. And 
my argument has always been when people have said that to me, just knee jerk said it, uh, well, you shouldn't say that. My answer has always been, if it's a black person killing another black person, what else do you want to call it? Right? So I'm going to talk to this brother and I'm going to, of all the questions I'm going to ask him, I'm going to, I'm going to ask him that one. Because if we're not going to call it black and black, what should we call it? Right? But more importantly, I want to highlight what he's doing to stop it. And so that's why I wanted him on. And I'm going to go ahead and introduce him now. Pastor Michael McBride, known as Pastor Mike, is a native of San Francisco and has been active in ministry for over 20 years. Pastor McBride's commitment to holistic ministry can be seen through his leadership roles in both the church and community organizations. Graduate of Duke University's Divinity School with a Master of Divinity with an emphasis on ethics and public policy, Pastor McBride founded the Way Christian Center in West Berkeley, where he presently serves as the lead pastor. In March 2012, he became the director of the Live Free Campaign with Faith in Action, a campaign led by hundreds of faith congregations throughout the United States committed to addressing gun violence and mass incarceration of young people of color. He is one of the national leaders in the movement to implement public health and community-centered gun violence prevention programs, which have contributed in 50% reductions of gun-related homicides in Oakland and many other cities across the country. He is the co-founder of Community Justice Reform Coalition and the National Black-Brown Gun Violence Prevention Consortium which worked to center black and brown gun violence prevention practitioners and scale up life-saving interventions related to urban and communal violence. Regarded as a national faith leader active in the Ferguson uprisings and many subsequent uprisings, he helps bridge, train, and support millennials in religious institutions working on racial justice and black liberation. Pastor McBride has served on a number of local and national task forces with the White House and Department of Justice regarding gun violence prevention, boys and men of color, and police community relationships. In 2016, he was appointed as an advisor on President Obama's Faith-Based Advisory Council for Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. He has been a frequent contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN, the Huffington Post, and many other media outlets providing commentary on issues related to faith and racial justice. And it is my honor that he's going to contribute to this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Pastor Mike McBride. All right, Pastor Mike McBride. Pastor Mike, Pastor Michael, how do you want me to, uh, sir, how do you want me to refer to you? <laughs> you, 
People call me Pastor Mike. You can call me McBride. Uh, just don't call me a son of a central mouth. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that sounds like my rules there, Pastor. That's, that's pretty good. Um, and and look, I'm glad we started this, this conversation laughing because a lot of the work that you do uh, doesn't involve a whole lot of laughter. It doesn't involve a whole lot of, of, of joy, but you have been one of the more successful people in addressing uh, violence and uh, gun violence in particular in the, in the inner city. Um, so mm-hmm. I did want to, I did have a series of questions I set off to, but I, I can't, I can't get into that without hearing your take on what has recently happened with the member of the Migos takeoff. Uh, we, mm. had, we had PNB uh, earlier this year, well, a, a couple of months ago. Um, what is, uh, what, what is your sense? Well, I'm going to ask you this question and then we'll get into what I really wanted to get in with you about. I heard I have heard people say that these young men have asked for what has happened to them. In the case of PMB, they said, well, you know, he shouldn't have wore this at at this restaurant. His girlfriend shouldn't have put it on Instagram. And then with takeoff, you know, it's like, well, he was in a dice game at 2:30. When we heard the story, he was in the area. He wasn't in the dice game. It was a stray bullet. He wasn't even the target. What what is mm-hmm. your what is your initial response when people get on social media and say that these young men, especially these high profile young black men, may have deserved what happened to them? Well, you know, I, I, I just want to appreciate being here with you. I think this is such an important conversation. And I think the 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 what is that? stake around us answering precisely your question is enormous. Um, I've been doing work related to gun violence for well over two decades. And what caused me to be engaged in this kind of work explicitly was because I was myself victimized um, by police brutality in San Jose while I was a youth pastor. That victimization, that brutality opened up a whole nother window that I had to walk through as it related to understanding the young people in my own congregational context who would say to me that their daily reality is they feel unsafe. They feel unsafe, whether they are in communities with, you know, their own uh, friends and loved ones, they feel unsafe whether they are driving down the street and being harassed and pulled over by the police. This feeling of not being safe, I think, is arguably the greatest political question that all of us, particularly those who claim to be the political champions of Black folks, Democrats, have to answer in this moment. Because gun violence is disproportionately visiting Black people, regardless of where they are. You could be in church, you could be at a dice game, you could be in a barbershop, you could be in a park, you could be driving in a car. Uh, you can be minding your own business. And what is it about a bullet that seems to find its way to a black body disproportionately, um, regardless of the activity that that black person is participating in? 
when it comes to the murders of, you know, hip hop artists, there have been over 200 rappers murdered since 2021. I remember the first murder of a rapper and I was literally in middle school. That's almost 25, 30 years ago. What is it about the, the, the way in which um, these artists are put out into our kind of ecosystem of violence and are so unprotected, their um, behaviors, their lyrics are exploited uh, largely by people outside of our communities, right? Because it's always important to appreciate that the largest sales of hip hop music are not black folks, right? And so this, there's a whole conversation about exploitation that I want to put at the front of this conversation, um, along with victimization. Um, it does not absolve us from responsibility. It does not resolve, absolve us from the tough conversation we have to have in our own communities about, you know, the norms that we set around violence. But I think it is important for Black folks, particularly who are political leaders, faith leaders, law enforcement leaders, uh, to not reach for these easy kind of um, narratives and fake solutions when we know that there's a much more pernicious, complex, and mendacious thing at work that continues to talk, that continues to put Black bodies at risk for death, particularly death at the, the hands of a gun. And, I, and I'm going to come back to those, those points because I want to ask you, based on your experience, what do you think those factors are and what has been the most effective strategy toward addressing them? But I want you to explain to the listeners what the Live Free campaign actually is and what you've been doing over these last 20 years. Yeah, so Live, Live Free emerges out of a network of faith leaders, congregations, denominations, religious organizations. We've been working together for the past decade um, to scale up gun violence prevention and criminal, just, criminal justice reform efforts that displace the kind of inevitability of Black death, injury, and exploitation by systemic racism, systemic violence, interpersonal violence, et cetera. We literally work in cities, well over dozens of them across the country, uh, to bring what is commonly known as ceasefire or community violence intervention or uh, street outreach programs, efforts that target the less than 1% of your city who are usually caught in cycles of violence that account for upwards of 60% of the violence in your communities, in our communities. And so Live Free, we do organizing work, we do uh, technical assistance support, we do political engagement. We do communications work. We do hands-on work with Pookie, Ray Ray, Keisha, Jose, Maria, all those in the community. Um, we, we like to work through faith-based organizations because regardless of people's feelings about the Black church, Latino church, et cetera, these still are institutional bases in our communities that have power, that have familial, communal networks and proximity to some of those most harmed by violence. But we also work with formerly incarcerated individuals, work with young millennial movements. So we're, we're a real robust kind of justice-serving community organizing network. Um, and we, we exist to uh, literally uh, fund peace, to, to make sure peace is a reality 
in black and brown communities without having to grow the prison population. So you threw out a statistic that a lot of people don't really get. You said that literally Mm -hmm. 1% of the population or less than 1% is causing 60% of the problem. Yep. Um, yeah. When, when, people, or the violence, right. I'll, I'll say the violence. Yeah. Right. And that, and that's something that when, you know, you try to explain as somebody that's been a, a, a elected official, when you try to explain that, it, you know, the whole thing, is, Oh, I just see on the news, all that stuff. It's, but it's really, it's just a small fraction. And, and, Right. It, it, even in Chicago, at one point, they said it was literally like four neighborhoods a few years ago. Where right. Most of the violence in that city was taken four four neighborhoods. And so, you know, what? Why do you think violence happens in those particular places? And what has been your strategy to alleviate? if not eradicate that problem in those particular areas? Yeah, I mean, it's a a very nuanced answer that I have to give that I hope your listeners, their eyes don't like roll up in the back of their head and they just be like, oh my God, Pastor Mike took me down a rabbit hole. But (laughs) let let me just say this. All violence that is, um, uh, you know, regionally concentrated, right? is largely a result of decades of disinvestment of resources that created infrastructure for opportunity, healing, and belonging. And so when we talk about, say, the four neighborhoods uh, that you mentioned in Chicago, you can literally go back 50 years and look at the political decisions related to those four neighborhoods that defunded their schools, closed libraries, gentr- uh, uh, did redlining, flooded their communities with drugs, and had a disproportionate presence of brutal, unconstitutional policing. All of those things you will find in every one of these neighborhoods across the country, right, that have high incidences of gun violence. Now, you may also find black and brown folks disproportionately in those communities, but to make this um, assumption, which I unfortunately think most politicians make, regardless of their political kind of commitments, that just because it is black and brown folks in these neighborhoods, then this must just be the culture of these communities. There are black and brown communities all across this country that don't have problems of gun violence, if they have jobs, if they have libraries and schools and home ownership and clean neighborhoods. So what is missing in our neighborhoods dealing with this level of violence is the investment of our tax dollars to create a vibrant, whole, healed, and opportunity-rich community. Now, historically, much of what we believe, and this is my, and I think our, our, our kind of campaign's commitment, We believe that where disinvestment exists, you will find uh, a proliferation of violence and trauma and pain. And so our work has to be, how do we, like a surgeon, if you're, or if you're a dentist, I took my daughter to the dentist this morning. 
Thankfully, they had no cavity. Somebody say, amen, go dad, go dad, go dad, right? Um, but if they had a cavity, they would not pull all of the teeth out of their mouth because they have one tooth that is not well. Our approach with black communities, brown communities, impacted communities, need not be collective punishment because of a small number of individuals in our communities who are caught in generational cycles of violence. Our approach needs to be surgical in kind. We ought not use the ultimate, the, 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 the most harmful response um, in order to try and save some of our most vulnerable or caught up individuals. We need to lead with public health. We need to lead with mental behavioral health. We need to lead with opportunity. And if all of those approaches fail, then some form of enforcement or some form of rehabilitated incarceral option should be the last resort, but too often in our communities, the only resort that is funded, that is persistent, and that is ever before our eyes is incarceration and policing. And it has made us less safe, not more safe. And it has had a collective impact on the whole of our communities rather than those small individuals who are driving and caught in those cycles of violence. So you talked about your personal um interaction for lack of a uh, nicer word with uh, the police when you were in uh, San Jose and that Mm -hmm. led you to uh, your ministry and your activism. And when you were explaining some of the dynamics about what causes these particular areas to have this acceleration of violence, My question to you is how much of a problem or a hindrance does police brutality play in in stemming violence and making communities stable? Well, I I believe police brutality is a huge obstacle. Um, You know, one of our, our comrades here says all violence that we experience in our communities is a result of state violence. Um, which just is to say that, you know, state violence could be uh, the conditions that create poverty. State violence could be the conditions that create unhealthy um, food and habits. Um, state violence could be that of the presence of uh, unconstitutional policing. And so, again, I do believe that police brutality, unconstitutional policing has been a hundred, at the very least, a hundred year long challenge in our community that has never been solved. Um, Reverend Amos Brown, who is a super elder in uh, the Bay Area community, he's also a member of the NAACP's uh, national board. Um, I remember I was in a conversation with him. He said his first uh, public action as a child when he was eight or nine years old was with his family and he was holding a sign that said, in police brutality. And that was in the 1930s. Right. Right. (laughs) So this idea that we are trying to have a conversation about community safety, whether it's violence that is interpersonal or violence that is state violence, uh, we're trying to have a conversation about community safety. And there has never been a day of of consistent um, state sponsored public safety efforts in our communities that we have all felt good about is a unique experience of black people in this country. 
right? I mean, it, it is a fascinating kind of dissonance um, that we have always had to live with to realize that there may be individuals just like there are in every community who are given to their worst selves, who fall into dysfunction of wicked behavior, behavior that, that is immoral and destructive. We know that our communities don't have more of that than others. But then we also know that literally the system that is there to provide public safety is unable to do so, and they have not been able to do so for hundreds of years. So imagine the psychological toll on Black people, Black families generally, when we are trying to have public safety in our communities, but the only folks that are sanctioned to deliver public safety have never been able to do that effectively for the whole of all of our lives. The burden that that places on us, I think, is immense and enormous, and that is why I continue to believe that reimagining public safety has to be a rigorous commitment of Black elected officials, progressive elected officials at every level. We cannot allow spikes of violence that can be explained through other means to be a reason for Black elected officials to keep reaching for failed political strategies that may be good talking points for certain constituencies of our communities, but do not over time get us the results we are seeking around public safety. So police brutality, unconstitutional policing to me is an important catalyst to the kinds of um, uh, lack of public safety, uh, lack of security. Uh, I often say that uh, unconstitutional policing breeds lawlessness. And so we must have some form of public safety that is community-centered, that is accountable to the community, that is resourced with our tax dollars, but not at the detriment of the basic needs that our communities need um, to have a full, vibrant life. And I think that that is the greatest challenge of, of governance in this moment when it comes to Black communities. How can we deliver all of that um, with fidelity, with integrity, and without throwing away large swaths of our communities to get there? So based on that statement, let me, let me ask you this question. You have, you, you've been hearing a lot of the political rhetoric that has been going on, uh, especially within mm-hmm. the last month. And the, mm-hmm. and the election is coming up November the 8th. Do you feel that af- on November the 9th, that there will be a majority of people in place at the federal, state, and local level to listen to those concerns? that you have to deal with better policing, to deal with more investment in communities. Based on what you've been hearing and 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 watching the dynamics, do you feel that on November the 9th we'll be on our way to do that? Or will you be in a strategic mode trying to counter what's what's come forth? Well, I am a preacher of hope, a prisoner of hope, <laughs> and even when it comes to violence, both stated and interpersonal, I always say that hopelessness is as deadly as a bullet. And so I cannot be given to hopelessness or despair. Uh, the day after the election, 
will greatly inform what our work must be. But I am always convinced that governance is the most important part of civic engagement. It matters less to me, although, I, you know, it is worth saying that, you know, uh, a, a Trump MAGA-like governance structure spread across this country is not good, in my opinion, for our community. <laughs> right? So I do hope people vote. You know, some of the data we've been looking at seems to suggest that there is a huge enthusiasm that outpaces, particularly early voting, what we've been hearing. And so we need to keep that momentum up in these final days. All of our folks should go to the polls. All of our folks should vote for safety, vote for healing, vote for opportunity, vote for folks who believe in data, evidence, science, and the best of Black, brown people's capacity and others, right, to achieve their highest end. We ought to vote in that way. But after the elections are over, whether they are Democrat or Republican at the federal level, the state level, whether they, whether they claim to be our friends, comrades, and allies at the local level, we must organize our leaders and governance to govern in ways that reflect the voters who put them in office, right? And I do believe that scaling up community safety efforts that are, are based in public safety and centered in community uh, members at the, highest, at the highest risk of shooting or being shot is not a widely held assumption, even among those who claim to be our political champions. When I say our political champions, I mean Democrats. So we have work to do even within the democratic progressive political universe, right, to make sure that they fully understand what community safety looks like. Uh, too many, I fear, are caught in the, the kind of zeitgeist of community safety or public safety conversations that are largely driven by terrible headlines, police unions, and you know, money interest. <laughs> and so we have to break through that. And the way we break through that is to organize ourselves powerfully um, in a way that makes sure whether you're a Republican or Democrat, we help convince you through the power of our organizing, the overwhelming presence of individuals directly impacted, survivors, faith leaders, elected officials, uh, even law enforcement officials, public health folks, nurses, doctors, therapists, we have to build a new political coalition around public safety and community safety that does not depend on the partisanship labels of the elected official. And I think in red, like we're working actively right now in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, a state that is all across the board Republican. But when we pulled the citywide summit together, there was huge energy to scale this work up. These folks may never vote Democrat, but they do care about reducing gun violence in their community. Alabama's another one. Uh, Missouri's another one, right? So there are opportunities on uh, each side of the political spectrum to scale up what works without causing more harm. And I think the day after the election, our strategic organizing and policy work must be focused to that end. And I think we'll have about maybe 12 months, honestly, before the next election cycle <laughs> starts ramping up to try to break through in some collective kind of way. Well, obviously when you were in Oklahoma, the governor wasn't there because when his opponent <laughs> informed him that Oklahoma had a higher crime rate than New York City, he literally laughed and thought that was a joke. 
Yeah. Uh, but yes. So if which he, shows which which shows that he's a joke, right? Right. <laughs> now, if he had come to the summit, then he probably would have been better prepared for that attack by his opponent. But um, <laughs> I, I really appreciate what you do. Um, I grew up in Chicago. I lived in Jackson, Mississippi for a long time, and now I'm in Atlanta. And I have seen how violence in the community. Well, let me ask you this quick question. Because somebody came to me, well, not directly to me, but somebody said something online. And since you do this kind of work, how do you feel about the term black on black crime? Do you think that's an accurate term? Do you think that's a pejorative term? What what What's your take on that? I think it's an unhelpful term. I certainly don't believe that it helps describe the unique challenge that black folks have when it comes to crime and violence. Um, if, if folks use white on white crime, brown on brown crime, Asian on Asian crime, you know, this was just a part of the lexicon of how everyone describes intra-communal violence, then, you know, it may cause me to bristle less. But usually the proponents of black on black crime as that kind of language are using it as a way to dismiss the valid claims that black people deserve safety without us having to be the sole, uh, you know, um, uh, um, arbiters or people responsible for delivering that safety, right? So again, it's often used uh, black on black crime means that black lives have to matter to us before they matter to anybody else. No, that's not true. Black, black lives should matter to everyone regardless of the levels of intra-communal violence in our communities. Black on black crime is, uh, is not helpful to explain and to capture the depth, the complexities, and even the solutions that folks are working every day with little resources and, and, and little political power to scale up the solutions that work. And so I often tell my folks with love, don't use the language of our antagonists and even at times our oppressors to try to describe the conditions that we could explain with much more charity, much more tenderness, and certainly with much more impact and effectiveness. So I don't use that language. I think it's unhelpful. I want to suggest to folks that we talk about intracommunal violence, just be explicit. We're talking about violence within Black communities. If you're trying to lift that up, it's worthy to be lifted up. We should have a very focused conversation about the violence within Black communities, but we ought not use it as a way to exempt and to free the larger society from their responsibility to help us solve this reality that we did not create on our own. And I said in the intro, that you were probably going to correct me because, you know, I've used that term a lot and there's some historical reason why I do it uh, based on some activism I did when I was younger, but I appreciate you offering me an alternative to address it Um, because Mm -hmm. living in those cities, knowing people who were victims, it, it, it hits me a certain way. So I appreciate you allowing or giving me and others a new way to say what needs to be said in order to do what we need to do. Um, Mm. Before, before we go, 
tell the folks how they can get involved with Live Free in your ministry uh, or even just to get in touch with you about uh, ideas or having you come to host meetings, whatever. Absolutely. So you can visit us online at livefreeusa.org. We are on social media, Live Free USA, Instagram, uh, Twitter, uh, my personal uh, Instagram handles and Twitter handles, etc. Um, I'm Pastor Mike underscore. I'm Pastor Mike underscore. And, and let me just say, you know, we want to support cities and communities, institutions, neighborhoods who are serious about um, healing the hurt of our communities. I believe the presence of every church, the presence of every institution in our communities is an offering. It's a gift by the Almighty where we don't have to build infrastructure. We just have to activate and coordinate infrastructure for the purposes of peace. And so reach out to us. We often have boot camps happening every quarter in every region of the country. Uh, I often tell folks, if you can get 100 people in a room, our team will fly to your city for free and do trainings and, and lay out what we've learned, help put you in connections with some of the individuals in your own city doing this work, but they are doing it often out of the light uh, of the knowledge of people in their own cities. There's a network, a robust network out here uh, that we are part of, the Black Brown Peace Consortium Fund Peace. There are people who want to help bring peace to our communities. Let us help you help your own city. LiveForUSA.org. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll let that be the last word and we'll catch y'all on the other side. And so we are back. And I hope y'all caught the f- that in the intro. I said I was going to ask him that question, and he answered it, right? So uh, to do better, you have to know better. So I'm going to take his advice on that one. And I apologize to my friends who I may have criticized for asking me not to use certain terms. But seriously, I appreciate him not only answering that question, but being on and highlighting the work uh, that he's doing. And hopefully that uh, a lot of other folks will continue to do uh, what he's doing, Uh, especially there's a, I can't remember the name of the group in Chicago, but there was a group in Chicago that was praying every week. Um, and they got attacked by gun violence. Uh, and I hope that didn't dissuade them uh, from continuing that work. Um, and there's a lot of places around the country. And if you know me, you know, it's not just blue states, right? As some people want to spell it out. Uh, the red states are having problems even more so than the blue states. And uh, especially as particular governor in Oklahoma, if he gets reelected. I hope he 
doesn't laugh the problem off like he did in the debate that he actually does something about it. If not, hopefully the young lady that's running against him will get in there and, and do the work that needs to be done in that state. But now I want to get into another aspect of it. Somebody who has dedicated their, their professional life to monitoring what's going on and hopefully from an academic perspective can come up with some solutions. Her name is Shani Bugs. Shani Bugs is an assistant professor with the Violence Prevention Research Program. It's based at the University of California, Davis. Her primary areas of research include community level gun violence prevention programs and policies firearm access and availability, comprehensive approaches to reducing violence through policies and programs at the local, state, and federal levels, and intersections between drugs, drug law enforcement, and gun violence. She completed her master's degree in public health and her doctorate in health and public policy at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my distinct honor to bring to the podcast Shiny Bucks. All right, Dr. Bugs, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Glad that you were able to come uh onto the podcast um and i wanted to talk to you about the work that you do um so before we get into that explain what is the uc davis violence prevention research program what exactly is that sure so it's a it's um a research center at the university of california davis the center's director has been doing gun violence research for going on 40 years or so, but the center itself was codified um, in the 1990s. And it's um, currently, it's expanded in the last several years quite a bit. And so it's an interdisciplinary research center devoted to bringing science and data and community voice to the issue of violence Primarily, we focus on firearm violence research, but we have scholars and researchers who look at at various forms of violence, and we are continuing to expand. So in my intro, I didn't say, how long have you been with the program? So I've been a part of the Violence Prevention Research Program for the past four years. I came as a postdoctoral fellow in 2018 and then I became faculty with the center and with the Department of Emergency Medicine in 2020. So what led you to do this type of research? What what motivated you to get into uh, studying this phenomenon about gun violence and trying to come up with solutions? Yeah, so I um, I I talk about my academic career as my second life. I was previously in corporate management for a decade and 
the latter part of that decade, I was working in an organization that was doing population level health promotion and decided to get my master's degree in public health because I intended to stay in that field and wanted to have some education, more training behind behind my work. And so I was living in Atlanta at the time and moved to Baltimore, Maryland to go to Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health for my master's program. That was the summer of 2012. And within a month of me being in that program, the Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting happened. And I was struck not by how much attention that shooting received because it deserved all of the outrage and shock that it received, but I was stunned by how little attention shootings in Baltimore were getting. Um, sometimes not even making the nightly news, or if they did appear on the news, it was very um, general and not, there was so little attention being given to the, the trauma, the grief, the outrage that families and communities in Baltimore were experiencing. And so, and I happened to be at Johns Hopkins, which at the time was the only academic institution in the country that had a center devoted to gun policy research. So I ultimately changed my entire career and, and life trajectory and decided to stay at Johns Hopkins and get a doctorate in health and public policy with a concentration focusing on, on injury and violence prevention. Yeah, and, and Baltimore is one of those cities that I have a, a, a interest in because my I have family there. Uh, my uncle just passed, as a matter of fact, but he was an attorney there. And uh, being a fan of this show, The Wire, uh, it, it made me sensitive to a lot of things that was going on in Baltimore. I grew up in Chicago, so I was already kind of aware of what was going on. And part of my journey before I went to college at Jackson State uh, was that I was with the Black on Black Love program uh, for the summer to deal with uh, violence in, in our in our community. So that's why, you know, I knew kind of my journey as to why that is an issue for me. But it's always interesting people doing the work what motivates them. So uh, I appreciate you telling me that. Uh, so you've been doing this at, at UC Davis for a few years now. What conclusions has your research provided toward the proliferation of gun violence? Well, I, I simplify what I see as the proliferation of, of gun violence as two-part. Um, it's our firearm policies in this country and the, the many um, insidious ways that structural racism plays out in every system and structure and institution in our country. Um, we as a people are not more violent than other countries. We, when you look at our non-firearm violence rates, um, research has shown that we are on par in terms of rates of things like robbery, burglary, 
um, larceny, our use of violent media, et cetera. But what makes the United States different is our firearm policy. We have um, anywhere between 18 and 25 times more firearms than other high-income countries in the world. And we have one of the highest per capita firearm rates um, in, in civilian hands. And what we've seen is that um, even over the last 20 years, many states have loosened the criteria around what firearm ownership um, looks like in our country. And in, in terms of public carrying, concealed carrying, stand your ground laws, and justified homicide, et cetera. And what that has done is that it has, um, it counters the research that we have that shows that increased ownership of firearms increases the risk of all forms of firearm violence, whether that be firearm suicide, firearm homicide, unintentional injuries, um, intimate partner, firearm homicide, et cetera. And the proliferation of firearms, the easy access, I know many people talk about, um, you know, a city like Chicago has firearm laws that are really restrictive, but when you look at how easily firearms can come over from Indiana or from other states that are nearby that do not have the same kinds of restrictions, you can easily see how, how firearms are transported. And, you know, unfortunately, um, while we know that firearms persist even in places where it may be illegal to own to own guns, the industry continues to profit um, off of the death and the fear of of arming ourselves with lethal weapons. Um, and so, I I, I recognize that firearm ownership um, and and self defense, particularly among Black and Brown families in America um, has a long history and, it, and there's, um, you know, a, a desire to keep our family safe. But the research does show that the more firearms that we have um, and, and the, the lack of consistent accountability by sellers of, of firearms, by those who profit off of encouragement of more ownership and, and sadly more black and brown death, um, we, we continue to see this, this proliferation. The other piece, as I said, you know, structural racism, which of course is incredibly complex um, and nuanced, but what we know about firearm violence is that it is highly concentrated among people and among places. And the people, um, well, the places where it is highly concentrated are those places that have experienced decades of disinvestment that have experienced racial, economic, residential segregation. They're the places that have high rates of poverty, high rates of unemployment or underemployment, high rates of police contact, high rates of mass incarceration, low rates of educational attainment, low rates of, of housing ownership, high rates of housing instability and food insecurity. And among people who have experienced 
overwhelming amounts of trauma in their own lifetimes or generally generationally. And so it's that concentration um, and the, the lack of addressing the high levels of deprivation and disinvestment, plus this um, these firearm policies that allow for firearms to easily move um, into communities where there is a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. And um, we continue to, to not address either one properly. So there's a couple of things. The first thing is that my previous guest basically said the same thing about systemic racism being a contributor. And I know you you were you were deliberately not trying to get into weeds and in, in details about that, but ex, explain as simply as you can what is the direct correlation? You used the word trauma, but what is the direct correlation between being poor and being violent? So there is the relationship between, research has shown there's a relationship between high levels of income inequality and increased risk of violence, high rates of poverty. It doesn't mean that everyone who is experiencing poverty, everyone who has experienced trauma sees violence as an option for resolving conflict and interpersonal disputes. But there is this relationship. We have not done sufficient research to understand all of the various ways that structural racism impacts the health and well-being of individuals who are living in conditions that whether directly or indirectly tell people that they don't matter but that's what these conditions have the the consistency of these deprived disinvested communities the fact that black and brown death by firearm violence has persisted for decades, but it's it becomes a conversation around mental health and a conversation around what else we should be doing when it begins to affect other people in the same way that drugs, when they were harming only in individuals, families, communities in central cities that were black and brown, and and low income with you know enormous amounts of disinvestment and little opportunity for social and economic mobility there was very little concern about what to do there until the the opioid epidemic and then now we are talking about treatment and treating it as a health issue and so we don't know all the ways that that structural and systemic racism makes or it, the ways that it increases risk of violence. It increases risk of a host of other health outcomes, a poor health outcomes, high obesity, diabetes. There, there's all kinds of ways that this relationship impacts humans that we, we have yet to fully appreciate. Um, and so firearm violence is just one of those symptoms of this larger issue of what happens when we treat people in our country, this land of opportunity and, and 
you know, enormous potential when we have generations of people that we have demonstrated in various ways that they don't matter, that they actually don't have the same mobility, the same opportunity as everyone else. And then the second point you had brought up about, uh, you, you use one of the examples about policy, uh, the stand your ground law. Now, full disclosure, I was a legislator for nine years in Mississippi. And when I was in the legislature, when we passed the stand your ground law and I was an actual sponsor, the, the reason why I became a sponsor of the bill was because I represented a district that was like 65% black. And there were black people in my district that were literally calling me and asking me to support the legislation because they were experiencing break-ins and, and car thefts and especially in the neighborhood I initially lived in, in the district, I moved to a, another uh, area, but, and I experienced a lot of break-ins myself, but they were, they were saying that they wanted to be protected by the law. And that's why they asked me not only to support it, but to be a sponsor. And I ended up being, I think the only black member as a sponsor of the bill. Um, but there is a negative side to that, right? And and we can look to what happened in Florida with Trayvon Martin. Um, and you also mentioned that you're, you're from Atlanta, or at least you lived in Atlanta, and we've got a governor who is, well, he's up for election <laughs> on November the 8th, and he passed a law where he pushed through a law and signed off on it that basically says anybody that's a citizen of the state of Georgia can carry a weapon. Don't have to, we used to have to, if we wanted to conceal it, we had to get a pro a license from the probate court. We could open carry, but we couldn't conceal it. Now there's no restrictions at all. Other than the fact that if you're an African-American or I say African-American because I, I think it's targeted to them. If you, if you convicted of a felony, you can't carry a weapon, right? But everybody else can. So as somebody that's been an elected official, if you had a chance, if I was still in that position and you had a chance to talk to me directly about what policies you think needs to change in order to stop this proliferation of gun violence, what would you tell me? So I, I appreciate you, you sharing that context. Um, and what I would say specifically to stand your ground laws is that there's research that has shown in Florida and now as other states have implemented stand your ground laws, looking at the, the data on who, who is found legally justified um, following an incident where someone is, is killed and the stand your ground law defense is used, the, race, the data are showing that black individuals are more likely, particularly if there's a black individual who 
shoots and a white individual who was killed, the laws are not applied evenly. And, and white individuals, especially white individuals who kill black individuals in these in these states where the majority populations, minoritized population is, is black, you're seeing these racialized disparities. And so this is this is my point that the ways that structural racism plays out, it's it may not, you know, on surface there may be good intentions, but the way that it gets played out um, is ends up creating these racialized disparities um, and inequities. What would I advise? I would say that investing in people and investing in communities, and it sounds simple, but investing in people's opportunity rather than investing in their punishment and their apprehension and their incarceration is the way forward. Um, we have we're spending overall more increasingly increasing amounts of money on police, prosecution, courts, prison, and less and less on public education, healthcare for everybody, housing stability. Look at, I mean, I'm in Sacramento, California. The homelessness population, people experiencing homelessness has exploded in just three years. And rather than investing in stabilizing and securing the lives of, of individuals and their families, we are focusing on sweeps and moving the camps and clean and, and not focused on that long-term investment in people. And so I would encourage any policymaker to really think about that investment of their constituents and think about, you know, there's there's much less spending involved in prevention than in reaction and in the treatment. And if we invest in preventing individuals from falling, and if we invest in caring for individuals and providing opportunity for young people, for teenagers, for young adults, and for their families, then we actually see people thrive and we save money. And everybody can win, but we have created this false narrative that it's an either or, that we can only invest in punishment or invest in taking care of people. And it's too it's too expensive to take care of people, so we're going to invest in punishment. Or we can only um, give money to corporations. We can't give money and, 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 and help bail out families and their communities. And it's just particularly when we look at the history of disinvestment in, in communities that experience a myriad of poor health outcomes, including high rates of violence and high rates of exposure to violence, which has all kinds of consequences in and of itself. Exposure leads to everything from post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms and depression and hypervigilance and increased risky behavior, and it creates a cycle and by not investing in stopping that and not investing in caring for people who are exposed to violence or people who are at high risk of violence, we create this cyclical effect that only continues to hurt us. And, and for many people, the idea is that the violence is over there, so it's not our problem and it's everybody's problem. It's every institution's problem. It's all of our problem. We pay for it regardless of whether we want to or not, we spend billions and billions of dollars in our country because of gun violence. 
And we, we, there, there's many, many better ways to spend that money. And that's interesting because normally when we have this conversation in the public policy realm, it's like, we need more background checks or uh, we need an assault rifles ban. But you're actually saying, how about affordable housing? How about fully funding public schools? You see that more as a long-term deterrent than some of those other pieces of legislation I, I mentioned. I think violence is a symptom of this larger problem. It is not in and of itself the only problem. It is a symptom of a larger problem. And if we provide, if we address trauma, address healing, address opportunity for people, I'm not saying that all of those other policy solutions are not important. They absolutely are because we, the idea, like you said, in Georgia, that anybody who wants to own and carry a gun can with no training, with no security, no, no real understanding of the consequences that come if a life is taken. You know, this, this notion that if you pull a, a, a firearm and shoot, you're automatically going to hit the person that you're trying to hit or you'll scare somebody away. This, this false narrative that gets created around carrying firearms absolutely needs to be addressed and, and policies associated with making sure that we are not handing over lethal weapons um, without recognizing the consequences. We don't put people behind this steer, you know, a car um, without license, registration, all kinds of proof of insurance, all kinds of rules and regulations around a car. But we have a lethal weapon that can take lives in less than a second. And we have we we are loosening the restrictions on on the that that is a problem. But yes, I think the re there's research and, and similar research in the in the substance use disorder world that when people have opportunity, when people have hope and are thriving, then and they have stability and security and something to ground them and some and and something to lose, then the way that you consider consequences are different. And um, what we also know is that the highest rate of firearm violence occurs among boys and young men, the ages of 15 to 29. That's the that's the peak where most young men um, are involved in, in violence. That's the, the proportion of all individuals involved in, in violence on either side of the weapon is that age range. So why are we not investing in young people, men, boys and girls, young men and young women at that age in fostering their security and their stability and their growth and their potential? Because we're losing so much by not doing that. And there are all kinds of ways that we are failing that population others older and younger, but particularly that population, when we know that they're so, that's a susceptible period of time for violence, we need to be pouring into them and taking care of them and providing opportunity. So we're, we're getting up against it and I don't want to make it a yes or no question, but I do want to ask, ask it in a way, uh, you believe 
if we approach this more as a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue, we could find a quicker solution. Most definitely. Okay. If people want to get information that the UC Davis uh, Violence Prevention Research Program is putting out, how can they go about doing it? Yes, they can go to our website, which is in the process of being updated and developed. But the website is health.ucdavis.edu forward slash VPRP for Violence Prevention Research Program forward slash. They can also just Google UC Davis VPRP and find the website. All right. Well, Dr. Bugs, I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to to come on. Uh, like I, I had stated before, um, my the other guests that appeared on the show has been doing work in the street. And so a lot of the work that you're doing helps him do what he needs to do. Um, because he needs to have the facts and the figures and anybody else that wants to actually do this work. So I appreciate you doing the work. I appreciate that you've uh, committed yourself to doing that. And I appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you very much. All right, guys, we're going to catch y'all on the other side. All right, guys, um, we're back. Uh, and I just wanted to well, first, I want to thank both my guests for coming on and talking about this issue dealing with violence. Um, and I, I I hope that you you got some out of it, and I hope that you noticed that there were a lot of similarities in addressing what the root cause of the problem is, right? From both guests. So with that in mind, uh, again, uh, November 8th uh, is election day. And uh, hopefully the people that listen to my podcast have already voted or uh, are going to vote on election day. Uh, but uh, if you, if you, if you hadn't decided, uh, I need you to decide in favor of voting and I need you to do it not only about saving democracy, but about putting people in office that are going to do the work to really make this country better. And some people may be cynical about that, but the reality is, is that the only way that we can fix what's wrong is to do what's right. And the right thing is voting. And the right thing is protecting the democracy on a daily basis. So with that note, um, do your civic duty and, and go out and vote November 8th. Until next time.